Let's roll. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for ranks, flanks, and kings of war. as they delve into the world of Panathor and bring you worldwide coverage of all things Kings of War. Welcome to Countercharge. I'm Kyle, Dino Lord Pool, undisputed champion of Dinosaur Goblins. I'm Adam Ballard. And I'm Jeremy Duvall. And I'm Rob Enough, and we're back to chat with two esteemed guests. But before we get there, let's do let's talk a little hobby. Kyle, what have you been hobbying? You've been painting goblins, right? Uh, yeah, because I thought to myself, let's bring a list of masters that I don't somehow own all the models I need in one matching army. So I have 108 rabble and two blasters left to paint for U.S. masters. It'll be my fourth goblin army. That's shocking to me that you're still painting goblins. Well, I own four armies, Jeremy. They just can't field the list I want as one matching army. Adam, how about you? Are you, are, you must be painting terrain and stuff, I imagine, getting ready for best of the rest in U.S. masters. Uh, I leave that to people that know how to paint. <laughs> been uh, been delegating that work, but uh, hobby wise, just putting the final touches on masters, best of the rest, trying to get some more people. We've got some drops, some ads, so we're hovering still right around that fifty mark for best of the rest. Because that you know that'll put us over a hundred, which is which is solid. Jeremy, now that you have dropped from the U.S. Masters and best of the rest. You must just have all kinds of time on your hands now. I guess that would that would be a hypothesis of sorts. I have been painting. It's one of those things where I know not going to masters was the right choice. I have a lot of work. I'm, you know, personal stuff, just like uh, lots of different threads of why that that tapestry was woven the choice the choice not to go. But as I look at that tapestry now on my floor, I just am like really mad that I bought that and I'm like I just like do I man, I just know the weekend of masters is going to suck. But um, I'm gonna. I'm happy everyone's gonna go and have a great time. So I've been working on my Empire of Dust. I finished my first reanimated behemoth that I'm using the Cronius for. I painted it kind of like sandstone with our favorite uh, teal triad for the flames, Rob. And I was pretty happy with how that came out. Now I'm working on my horde of enslaved guardians. My test model done, and I'm just working on the rest of the unit. So continuing to work on the EOD, even though I'm not going to Masters, I'm still most likely now I'm shooting for Bay of Kings and Fall as its show-off date. Uh, and then so, still painting a little bit uh, of the Marvel Crisis Protocol stuff as palette cleanser. Uh, yeah, so it's been fun. My end. Uh, I've been painting goblins, 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 more goblins, but I'm going to probably take salamanders to the best of the rest because they're all painted already. Uh, we did just finish up Kings of Memphis 3, Revenge of the Bard. Huge congratulations to John Green. It was a great room. We ended up with six drops, which was a little bit more than we usually get, but, you know, it, it, it is what it is. Uh, and we had a very, uh, I, I would say, that even though we, it sounds weird, but even though we only had 26 players, the pool of players we had were a very high caliber so it was definitely not a an easy room i mean the top end of that room was tough i mean we obviously had kyle there kyle pool and we had travis tim and we had jeff o'neill and nathan clevenger and keith randall and john green blakemore we had john blakemore who is you know uh, for someone that just a few years ago was the bottom of the barrel at u.s masters i mean he really showed his his medal shout out to john he knows how to use a clock now, and he's actually finishing his games. 
So congratulations to John. I think I saw another new name up there on the list. Uh, Andy, Andy Patton. He finished sixth. I took fifth and Billy Smith took fourth. So a lot of new names up there, but Andy had a good run. I think he went three and two. Is that right, Kyle? Yeah, he had the unfortunate uh, reality of having to face off against me in my tryhard pants. The new players are really coming up all over, uh, you know, scrying Jim, talking about new players. The Midwest has new players just all over. So it makes me excited. Is Billy still trying to be like, quote, I'm the hobby guy, quote? Or is he like... Well, he did win Best Painted. He's the hobby guy who also... Uh, wins, but he's got the lightning bolt batteries. If that's what you're that's asking, that's what I'm yes. saying, man. He's it he looks like he's tried to win a little bit, but congrats to him. He, that's great. He did so well. We'll have more episodes on that coming up. Well, I'm sure we'll we'll chat with John Green at some point. Went four wins and a draw, a winning draw, I should say. So he had a great run. And shout out to Keith Randall who won Best General, and Billy Smith who won Best Painted, and we uh, Brian Trahan, local player, won Best Sports. Jackson Blakemore uh, actually took Counter Charger. The funny story for me was many of you may not know Taylor yet, Taylor William, but he does post on Fanatics and other Facebook pages. Didn't show up on day two, and I and I text him say, Hey dude, are you, are you coming? And nothing, nothing, nothing. He finally shows up, and he's like, Oh, I forgot to set my alarm clock. I'm not sure that he did not tie one off pretty hard the night before. I did my best to rack his army and play like a, a blind person. But I still think he managed to win that game, even though I tried to, to really mess up my deployment. But you didn't try hard enough. I didn't try hard enough backwards. Yeah, that would be the thing. What's going on with uh, Masters and the best of the rest? We're what? Uh, by the time this drops, we're probably two weeks out, less than two weeks out. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, newest information was the lists were posted, matchups were posted. So, uh, the scrying gems did their thing, uh, and, you know, talked about kind of the overall meta. So, uh, really getting me excited for the event, hearing a lot of that and seeing a lot of, uh, talks about the statistics and the units and, uh, you know, the number of armies and everything. So, um, I think that's really kind of the hype right now for Masters. Um, and then Matt Carmack released a uh, survey for people to fill out as well, uh, voting for who's going to win each uh, game first round. And then there's also a uh, pick your top five uh, Masters players. And there's uh, we got a little uh, incentive going on with that. So whoever picks the uh, the has the five best picks is going to get a $50 Mantic uh, uh, gift card uh, for their online store. So if you haven't filled that out, fill it out. It's on, uh, it's on the Man- or uh, the fanatics page, or you can message Matt or me directly. We'll get you a link. You know how hard that damn bracket is Ballard. There's a lot of tough matchups. If that's what you're talking about. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> I asked this question to the Scrying Gem guys when we did that show, but uh, I won't ask you for picks, but I liked hearing sort of what's the narrative they're going to be watching. You know, is there certain something that's sticking out for you guys, like something you're excited to see, a matchup, uh, an aspect of Masters that you're sort of wanting to unfold throughout the weekend? Uh, for me, it's the uh, the rise of the new faces. So there's, there's a lot of first-time players at Masters. Um, and there's probably even more than I, I realize because I don't have a, a list with everybody. But I, I'm expecting there's a good 15, maybe 20-ish people that this is their first Masters that they've been to. So the narrative I'm looking at is, you know, there's always the regional battles. But I'm also looking at 
the uh, the veterans versus the newbies kind of battling it out. Uh, I'd love to see some of those uh, matchups if there are any of. Uh, I would say the one that sticks out to me in the first round that that popped out was uh, Jesse Garrett versus uh, Jeff Shulkin. That's about you know as as veteran as you can get with Jeff Shulkin and uh, Jesse. I, I got to play Jesse at Lone Wolf and uh, he he beat me. So he's a uh, he's a great player too. So uh, I'd be very interested to see the outcome of that that one in particular. Really looking forward to the. This feels like the first Masters where I don't think there's a clear army in the lead, I guess is what I'll say. Like I've gone to some of the other masters and I'm like, I feel like, I guess Eric was a, Eric Trowbridge's orc win was a bonus just because I'd helped it rep like a hundred battles against everything. But I really felt like the meta was way more defined in previous masters. And this year, I'm not sure it is. So I'm excited to see how it shakes out and, and where it actually sits, right? Does defense six, does alpha, does trash, does some sort of weird hybrid amalgamation that nobody rates come out on top. So I'm, I'm excited for the, the meta math and matchup wise. Uh, all that matters is watching Keith Randall lose round one. You just know how to excite me, Kyle. I mean, it's always been yeah. that way. Well, I you lost, know. I lost to Keith on a coin flip. <laughs> you know how to get me uh, there. And, a and a bad coin flip at that. So now, now Keith has to be defeated. Yeah. He sent me a message and he's like, no pictures for you, Jeremy. Because he was winning <laughs> at uh, uh, at your tournament, Rob. So it's like I got to keep upping the Keith the Keith cry bounty, I guess. So, so tonight we're going to do something a little bit different. We haven't done in a while. Uh, we've got some experts here that are going to look at and chat about some of the boogie units that are common on the field of battle, and and newer players may find them harder to deal with. Huge shout out to Patrick Cunningham because. He actually assembled a list for us. It was actually his show topic. And uh, once I got the list, I said, well, I think we need to get a couple couple uh, great players. So you only found Adam and two filler. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But I think I think it's going to be fun. I mean, one of the things we were talking about before we started is there's probably some common themes to some of these things, right? There's probably some common tactics that would work for any of these. But I think it'll be interesting to dive in and chat about these different units, what makes them scary, what makes them effective, how do you counter them? And then maybe at the end, we circle back in just general tips for beating all of these kind of armies. I'd say as a primer, before we go in, if, if you haven't listened to the scrying gem episode uh, on counter charge, you should probably pause this one, listen to that, then come back. Cause they're going to be pretty connected. I would agree. Absolutely. Yeah. They did a great job of going into a lot of these units that are found, especially scorch wings had a lot of the talk. But I think there's a lot of really great tactical discussion in that. Uh, Tom is always, you know, on point with his observations. Well, let's get started. Uh, so again, thanks to Patrick for putting this list together. For the first units we want to talk about are the ones that are in the Night Stalker list: Soul Flares and Void Lurkers. So obviously, we'll turn it over to Adam. Soul Flares in particular, what makes these guys scary? And then obviously the Void Lurkers as well. Well, I mean, with the Soul Flares, uh, at least the way that I've uh, always played them, is they're, um, they they have a good number of attacks for the base size, being 12 attacks and a regiment of large cav. Um, but the thing that makes them scary is when they actually get a flank 
they're, they're almost never breaking anything important by just doing front charges. Um, so I think that positioning for them is, is a big thing. And uh, really the rest of their army has to kind of unlock that uh, in order to allow the soul flares to um, ideally jump the lines because they're high four and then hit, uh, hit the units in the flanks while other parts of their army are engaging in the fronts. And then the Void Lurker is, you know, more of a Dragon-esque type piece where uh, it can definitely be on a flank uh, or as a flanking unit being nimble. Um, but the Soul Flares, I don't feel, provide that type of role. They're uh, on the flanks. They feel more like a light cav type unit than, a, uh, than an actual uh, flank dominator. You have to respect them. Um, my loss at Masters two years ago, three years ago to Joey Greek was I didn't put enough respect on the Soul Flayers, and they won the game for them bottom of six with a flank charge. Um, they're really hard to control. So the Void Lurker, to me, has always been sort of a medium dragon. I've always you got to respect anything that flies and has nimble, but I don't rate it as like a top-tier dragon or an oppressive unit. The Soul Flayers have the Wind Blast, they've got the mobility, and Jeremy, or not Jeremy, Jeremy, you haven't contributed yet. Adam pointed out they're height four, and that's going to be a theme in some of these flying units you see listed. Um, they're really hard to hide from, so you end up having to either layer chaff and control your spacing, or you have to have an individual who can answer it, right? A groany snark, a lord with wings, an assassin with wings of the honey maze, or uh, some sort of disruption unit. Or you're at their mercy. So it it's always worth thinking about, do I have an answer for something that flies that's too tall to hide from? I think there's a few things you want to look at when you're playing against a unit like this. There, there are certain flying pieces. These guys, Alohi regiments, right? Um, other things that people maybe uh, in the front aren't as bad, but you really got it. You don't want to get flanked by this type of unit. And often players who take this unit will take multiples and they'll deploy them in a way that it's not full left or full right a lot of this type of units are really well deployed left center or right center because as you're advancing your battle line and there's a unit like this sort of off to the left or off to the right you often don't see flanks that you're giving up right just how the angles work you're like oh you know i'm in the front there are are it's just a kind of a, a unique space to have a unit in that's off deployed off left or deployed off right it, you can you can get a lot of things there that don't quite look like you should so when playing against a unit like this, you just got to re be really diligent as we talk about how do you play against these type of units. You really got to check everything. Look at all the angles. Talk to, talk yourself through your movement. Okay, am I, am I out here? Am I in the flank here? You know, really, this is not a unit you want to let get in your flank, so take that extra second. And I think Kyle brings up a really interesting point, which is I think dealing with flyers the way that you can is really think about spacing. You know, if, if a flying unit can't land, if there's not enough space for them to land, they can't charge you, right? So denying charges by board state space, I think, is a really good tool to start to think about when you're trying to increase your game is maybe uh, uh, they are in your flank, but there's no place for them to land. That's a possible way to defend against these type units. Or if they do land and you know have a have an answer but for me really in playing against this unit my step one would be double check all the flanks 
you know, make sure that, you know, I know what they can charge. You should be able to look at this unit and know when you're done with your turn exactly what that unit's charge options are. Uh, and if you haven't gone through that list in your head, then you really should, because these guys are in a flank. It's not a fun day. Something that didn't get mentioned is one of the reasons I don't rate Void Lurkers as much is Void Lurkers are very expensive compared to Soul Flares. So if you can keep that quote-unquote dragon from not joining the fight for two turns, three turns, four turns, that's a huge wasted investment. Soul Flares are cheap enough that if they have to sit patiently, just like in a Lohi regiment, the general piloting it isn't really offended that their flying unit strength is just waiting patiently for an opportunity to go be something more than scoring. But at the end of the game, they never do anything and then they score. Oh, well. So you have to, you also have to put pressure on it if you're looking to counter it, or you can play a flawless defense game and then you still let a flying scoring unit score. So you, you have to think about its value in each mission at the same time as not getting flanked. I mean, looking at the the stat profiles for soul flares of our lookers, the things that jump out at me is, you know, one thing is obviously there's no nimble on the soul flares, which is to your advantage, right? You, it, it is easier to try to keep it in your front Kyle, some of the things you said about the Void Lurker is it's interesting because it's 270 points. It's like a, I don't want to call it a baby dragon. It only has crushing two thunder one, right? Rather than like crushing three. The bigger thing is only defense four, but it has regeneration five plus, which is good. I call it a utility dragon. Yeah, I think what a lot of new players, and I'm curious, Adam can speak to this. A lot of new players, how they deal with dragons sometimes, they don't realize that if you're maneuvering 400 points or 500 points to look at my dragon and not give me flanks with my dragon or support me. I'm going to move my dragon slide to the left out of, out of range again. And then you're going to reface that five, 600 points again. And then right now I'm winning, right? I'm not killing you, but you're using double the amount of points that this piece costed to try to prevent me from doing anything with it. So that means elsewhere in the board, I know I have an advantage over you. So that's something just to keep in mind. How much of your resources are you are you dealing towards not letting this dragon get in a bad spot or whatever? You still want to defend against it, but sometimes you see that a lot, Adam, right? Where they, they'll turn half their flank to look at your dragon and you're just killing all their the rest of their stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Usually if you're in a situation where you're going to get flanked by the void lurker or you're gonna turn uh, you know a large portion of your force to face at it and then ignore the rest of the army. Um, at that point, it's just a, it's just a bad choice either way, uh, unfortunately. And you're absolutely right, Jeremy, when you turn to look at the void lurker, the void lurker is not going to attack you. It's, it should just maintain that pressure and the rest of the army uh, applies a winning uh, you know, if, assuming they're winning on the other side of the battlefield, they'll just keep winning and the Void Lurker will just stay there. And this happens with any any unit like a Void Lurker. So realistically, you need to foresee those types of situations and put yourself in a better position uh, to avoid having to make a, a, too bad, uh, a choice between two bad options. And I, I feel the Soul Flare Regiment does a similar role for way less points in this direct comparison. So that's why I, I rate those flying regiments so highly. Same with Tortured Souls, like the Scrying Gems talked about. It's, I'm going to apply pressure that you have to respond to, and you can't counter it 
for less points than I'm dedicating to the pressure. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the way that you deal with a unit like that, the Void Lurker, is you purposely give it a flank and say, the Void Lurker is how I'm going to give the Void Lurker with my 150 point unit, I'm going to give it a flank. As long as I know I have something then that's going to charge the Void Lurker after it kills, whatever that. But that could be a tool that you deal with that flying monster on a flank is that you just give it. You just you just give it something and and just try to set up a counteroffensive. So Kings of War, I think, really is a trading game when it comes down to it. So sometimes you want to let it, you want your opponent to want to charge with it, and then you'll deal with it that way. It's just there's a lot of tools to deal with fighting against these units. That's just one. One thing that we really haven't talked about, obviously, these both have stealthy, right? Soul Flare is only 1350 nerve and defense four. A massive fire can take these guys out, even even with the stealthy. You know, if they're thinking that, oh, I'm going to definitely play Soul Flares, are there are there units that they should be putting in their list? The Your stereotypical chaff units, so something that's uh, higher speed and that is cheap. So if you can go in, do a, do a wound or two, and just stop these guys from doing something, that, that unit's going to be valuable. Um, another thing that I rate quite highly are uh, units with phalanx, and I, I really gravitate towards regiments that have phalanx. Um, now, for these couple of units, they're they're more hunting flanks. So units with phalanx, if they get hit in the flank, it's not going to matter. But um, if you do have phalanx, it allows you to kind of uh, be put in situations where you can press the issue uh, and kind of force your opponent to make a choice between two bad options uh, on their end. So. And Adam really pioneered that, you know, with his EOD list and the Regiment of Skeleton Spearmen, I think is such a valuable tool in that list. And that's another way you can deal with it, right? One flying defense is to play an army that has surge. So if something flies behind you, you turn around and get surged surged into it. But I think with these really, you know, have something that 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 can outspeed them. Um, the, because you can't really because they have flights that's you can't just drop something in front of it to block them you know they because of that taller height that they've talked about before but but maybe some quick uh some quick speed uh also too sometimes to deal with this deployment can matter right was there certain deployment schemes you faced when uh you were running these a lot adam that made it a little more difficult to use like uh, def- uh denied flank or or uh, really tight formation so they were hard to maneuver in yeah, denied flank will naturally uh, help you um, defend against flyers. So if you're if you're experiencing difficulties with flyers, um, denied flank doesn't work for every scenario. But um, I would definitely recommend doing that. And what we mean by denied flank is putting uh, uh, building your force off of a uh, one side of the board. So you either commit to the left or you commit to the right, and you probably deploy out to, you know, a third or half of the board. Um, and that's not to say you can't put anything on the other half of the board, but usually anything that's beyond that uh, zone that you're dedicating to uh, is self-sufficient, uh, whether it's fast in its own right or it's, uh, you know, self-inspiring or has inspiring uh, I, I would recommend keeping your core uh, units uh, compacted together, though, with the denied flank option. It prevents you from fighting a war on two flanks. The best flank is always impassable terrain because it never routes. So a board edge, buildings, if they can't kill your flank, 
it's protected. <clears throat> so terrain terrain usage against flyers is massive. Yeah, we call that anchoring, right? Where you can anchor your line, which means if you're doing a denied flank, the part of your line that's either third in or middle in, if on the other side of that is a building, that can be really nice. It really cuts off the angles. And I think just denied flank, I often, I don't know what you guys think. I often, when, I, when I'm not sure how to deploy, that's like my default deployment. It's something that I think it's not going to get you into a lot of trouble most times. It may not win you all the game, but it's not a deployment that right off the bat, I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have deployed this way. So maybe when, you, when you're kind of thinking about it, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I would recommend denied flank uh, unless you know your army is faster uh, or has um, the rain, uh, a significant ranged advantage. Um Denied flank is just definitely a good tactical approach to the game um, to help mitigate um, thing help not necessarily mitigate I guess uh, make your uh, make your games more consistent um, it is really the big thing it, it really helps with tempo it allows you to be aggressive on one part of the board. Um, and then play defensively more uh, on the other side of it. So um, I think the the feel-bad moments, uh, especially with flyers, is when you look at the board and you're in a state of, well, I'm not winning any part of the battlefield here. It's all It all looks losing. Um, you know, if you get caught out by flyers, that's definitely what can happen. Something you will probably pop up as a theme is looking at the list of what we're going to talk about a way to counter a lot of these air quote oppressive units or army styles really is a deferred flank. And it's, it's kind of because that's the safety deployment you control, you get to play your game on your frontage for your army. So whether they bring 28 drops or 10, you're controlling the footprint of the battle now, the trade-off is sometimes the mission punishes that, but from an overall deployment standard, if you can really get good at deferred, like a deferred flank or a deferred corner, you, you're going to see yourself win a lot more often than you did before. Yeah, it's a good place to start when you're wanting to think about deployment on the next level, you know, besides just I'm putting all my cool stuff down, but you want to start thinking about it in a little bit more deeper, more robust way. That's a good place to start, I think. Well, awesome. Let's keep moving on. We've got a few more of these boogie units or these uh, problem units for to, to chat about. And next, let's jump into forces of nature. Uh, and the two uh, things that we wanted to really speak to is obviously we had Adam on uh, not too long ago on a live stream to talk about greater air elementals. But we also have this formation. So, Jeremy, you want to kind of walk us through this, uh, the greater air elemental and the nature's wrath formation? If you've played consistently against three greater air elementals, it's like not a, it's not it's not a great time. Uh, it's just so maneuverable; they can get where they want. Um, they uh, in a flank, they're just so nasty. I mean, twenty ten attacks on threes. The fact that that they hit on threes, I think, is really tough. Crushing strength one, uh, nimble pathfinder. So the formation, you also pick up two hordes of air elementals and um see i'm so used to playing against just the greater airs what does the formation give them again regeneration 
brutal aura on the greater air that comes in the formation. I don't know. I mean, it's still good if you're multi-charging, you know, that brutal aura, but it does make it so that it's a little bit more, um, uh, you don't want to send it off by itself, right? With, with, uh, the aura, but I mean, the aura does affect itself. And I mean, that's nice to have a greater air elemental who has brutal too. It also affects the other graders. So it's, it's not uncommon to see the formation with three graders. I mean, it's most the list at that point, but man, it's... That's expensive. To me, the, the greater air elemental issue really is it's a saturation issue, right? You can deal sometimes with one unit like that, but, but multiples, they will find flanks. And they are a surgible unit, which makes it even more nasty. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a, a hard unit to play against. My struggle with them is where you can defend against a Void Lurker, for example, by just saying you're in my front. Greater Air, the weakness of Surge is they can't double time to really buy flank space turn one. The advantage of Surge is if you don't shut them down and they get close, you're giving up rear charges if you're not careful. Yeah, by turn three or turn four, if you've if you've not really thought about it, they're, forget. there's no way to – it's almost impossible. It's like the crane kick, you know? You know it's coming. You see the, I mean, you know, they borrowed my headband. You know, you know that the crane kick is coming, but it's just nothing you can do. So how do we counter that, Jeremy? Well, I mean, the same thing with that. You have a couple of options, right? This is when maybe, uh, when having, uh, being able to play in every phase matters. I mean, they are only defense four. Granted, they have uh, regeneration, so which can be tough as far as taking off like chip chip damage i think the hordes are a little bit you can try to deal with them that there is still a space issue you know with hordes i think if you're playing against greater airs you almost have to bake it into your army build in your strategy that they are going to get flanks that it's impossible to deny it i mean that was one of the reasons why i, I developed my eod defensive list was playing against all these air elemental greater airs I, trying to deny them i ended up spending the whole game just making sure they didn't flank charge me and then i lose everywhere else on the battlefield so i just sort of said at some point i know the air elementals are going to get into a flank there's nothing i can do about it so let me take a unit that can take an air elemental in the flank and survive and then counterplay but I don't know. This is one of those problems that I think is difficult. I don't know if there's like one great answer to deal to deal with. Your solution and my solution are very similar. Um, for the few who, who really don't know, I play MSU Spam Goblins as my bread and butter. So I'm talking 18 plus drops at 2,000 points. And at Masters, I'm taking 24 drops at 2,300. And... The way I counter Greater Air is I basically set my lineup so it can only charge the one unit that I want it to charge. Like, I'm allowing you to take this charge. It's your choice if you take it or not. And you might kill it. You might not. You probably will. But once you're done, your unit will die. And it's because I bring a counter battery, which is the breath weapons and the bangets. So if you kill whatever I allow you to kill... I will then shoot you off with no mercy. And on average dice, you're at snakes. So the, the air player has to decide. And then the risk becomes, if you bring three of them, how do I handle it? And that's where you have to try and control spacing or what do you, what do you commit to it? But a lot of times I'll, I'll let you have a charge and you just have to decide if you're willing to take that gamble. 
Yeah, I think you said it a little bit more eloquently than what I was trying to say, but that's basically it. Knowing that they're going to get where they want to get and make it so when they do get there, they they pay the big they pay the price for it. And they only Have, get what you want them to get. Yeah, try they, to do they that. Know it's fate. Yeah, but sometimes you have to give up a flank, right? In protecting this unit, I know that I'm giving a greater air this flank, or I'm giving them this thing, because I know that I'm protecting other things that are more important. So if you go around trying to make sure they can't ever flank you ever, you're gonna it's like, where'd who go? You're going to be running around in a circle the whole game. Yep, I just played Devlin with his greater airs, and I know the only thing he'll charge with greater airs in my list is my war trombones, my shooting battery. So I set it and I, I knew I had to make the trade. So I gave him one and I knew I had more than enough shooting left to clean it up afterwards. And I had a melee hero in case he sent in a second one on standby. So I, I made the sacrifice to give up a quarter of my battery to kill a giant flying unit strength threat that I didn't have to worry about anymore. And he took the trade because if he doesn't kill the war trombone, right, I'll just walk forward again and start applying pressure. So my answer has been either you take the bad charge or I'll come touch you. And that's how I've handled that type of unit. So for me with these units, uh, it's kind of a, <clears throat> with the surge and their 50 millimeter base, it's almost impossible to stop uh, getting them uh, a good flank or, or even a rear. Um, you can, you can mitigate some things you can, prevent them from getting into maybe one or two of your units altogether, but there doesn't mean that they're not going to hit, you know, three or four other units instead. Um, so what I always uh, suggest focusing on in this particular matchup is uh, how you win the game. So what I mean by that is if you're playing, say, like a dominate scenario, it's going to come down to how much unit strength you have. Well, each of these greater air elementals is only going to be one unit strength. Um, and you may have uh, a big bad monster, you know, something that's also one unit strength that they're looking to try and kill. And then you have, you know, a little measly infantry regiment that's unit strength three. Uh, to win the game, it might just be better to allow them to get into the the more threatening target of that monster and to actually protect your higher unit strength units. Um, so looking, looking at the game more from a how do I win the scenario versus how do I win this engagement uh, it is going to help develop people's games further and beat these types of uh, units and lists that have the the uh, air elementals in them because um, they, they are just kind of right now. They're, they're a little bit too good in my opinion. So, and I think you bring up a great point, Adam, which is that idea. Sometimes it's good when you're playing against something like that, something that there is no good answer to. Right. And that's why I, 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 I really feel you when you say this is a unit, the greater air that there's just no real good answer to it. So in those type of scenarios, go back to the scenario Really think about what do I need to win? I know that it's a losing it's a losing effort, me trying to run around, deal with this stupid BS unit. So instead, how can I, you know, become hyper focused on the scenario? I agree. I mean, we talked about what our best counter was give them the only give them a bad charge for us so that we could kill it in response. Like that's our best advice. So the logic there is just be better at the mission. 
And that's always a good tool too. I think, you know, for, for you guys listening who, you know, you, you played a little bit and you're trying to take it to the next level, which I think this is great to have Adam and, and Kyle on here t- to help us all learn how to do that. Thinking about how to win the scenario, sometimes letting people take flanks or rears or feeding units or letting stuff die. You, that's what you want to do because that's going to help you by the end of the game, uh, get you there. So I think that's just a good skill to develop, to take you to the next level is uh, don't start thinking about the scenario on turn five, you know, start, start at the beginning of the game. Yeah. It takes practice. Cause if you feed the greater air too many units, you lose. Um, so it's all just a balance of practice when you switch on um, sacrifice mode versus defense mode versus bait. Um, but it, it's something that if you watch Adam's live stream, he trades units. If you watch videos of Jeremy or me or some of the other top tables, they'll sacrifice units to gain objective advantage. It's not always about board pressure or kill advantage. Sometimes you're, you're using your bait to say, look, come kill it. You take my threat away, but then you can't score either. So it's, it's a balancing act of when you turn it on and when you don't, but against air, you just don't have the luxury of making a mistake or you're done. Yeah. The worst yeah. feeling is when the greater air comes in, picks up something, and then there's absolutely no repercussions for them whatsoever. Are you check, um, you check every angle and you give them all these flanks and then they find the one of like a hundred combinations that you didn't see that puts them, you know, kills a unit and then they're facing your rear. That is just so soul crushing because you spent so much time thinking about, okay, I'm going to give them the air. I'm going to block this. I'm going to do this. Okay. I'm done. And they're like, okay, well, I'm just going to charge that over there. And you're like, no. And I'm, I'll be very candid. There's a reason I have two different melee heroes who are very good at melee in my list. And it's because at the end of the day, sometimes your solution needs to be, I'm just going to charge you. And make you sit. Yeah, just punch you in the face. So I've got one slow defensive one and one fast offensive one. And I run that at my goblins. My orcs have more melee heroes than they used to. My ogres have taken a goblin hero now. And my elves, I really am struggling to leave home without a mounted hero for the sole reason of saying, I need a way to cover and oops, like you described, right? And that applies to the Soul Reaver or the Soul Flares, the Terrors, the Dragons, the Alohi, the Greater Air. Sometimes you miss something and you have to have a way to adapt to your mistake or you're going to lose big bad. I think that's that idea of redundancy, right? And redundancy can be in unit, but you can also have a redundancy of strategy, right? Redundancy of generalship. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to put redundant stuff so that when I screw up, a la uh, defense six empire of dust when you flank me at least you're flanking something that's defense six you know i think your so whole kingdom in list is built around that isn't it rob just being a uh, mistake proof yeah i mean you just sort of just keep it pointed in the right direction try not to let them get around you i mean that's maybe one of the themes here with a lot of these units is that they they force the opponent to make decisions right and and the hope is that you make a mistake you give that soul flare unit of a flank for example so i agree the player who asks the most questions on the table usually wins the match with with their army so my army asks more questions of yours than yours does of mine i i'm probably going to win the game 
Yeah. Then you're hoping for dice at that point, right? Or your point. But again, if you're, if I'm having to answer more questions about your list than you are mine, it's, it's, you have the upper hand. I agree. Well, let's keep rolling. Let's talk about wraiths and whites. So Jeremy, this is, uh, this is all you, isn't it, buddy? Didn't you, didn't you, didn't you used to be an undead player? Yeah. Uh, I never played with any of this nonsense though. I had werewolves. Okay. I was like the cool hipster werewolves in leather jackets, like running around being cool and overcosted. So well, you played uh, for sports boats. Gosh, I miss werewolves. Uh, whites are another flying unit that a lot of people like to deploy center behind something that can um, remember that a flying unit it, it it can land anywhere. So often you'll have a unit that's in arc of the whites, and the whites can touch the very back corner. And you think, oh, there's no way that they can flit, fit in my flank. But it's like they can touch that back corner. So, again, I, I really uh, – uh, talking a lot about that flyers not on your edge, but those flyers that are deployed a little bit to the left of center or a little bit to the right to center, and they want to go like an X marks the spot, right, where the one on the right is looking to go to the left part of the X and the one on the left is like trying to do the right part of the X and in the middle is your poor unit getting sandwiched by, by uh, whites. But I, I, I think that's just something to really look out for is, is when flyers are deployed towards the middle of the board, that doesn't mean that they can't still flank stuff. That's actually the most threatening spot for them. It, it's, pretty, it's pretty televised when they're on the flank, they fly up and then they look towards the center. They're, they're obviously trying to get into the flank. The, the really tough ones to stop is when you're trying to push the line forward or even worse, they're pushing their line forward and they have those flyers in position just looking over that front line to where you can't stop the flyers. So you have to engage in the front line first and then the flyer, their flyers are their counterpunch and they just come in and clean up with flank charges. That's a very valid point, and it's something we didn't talk about in Night Stalkers and Greater Air, and we probably should have. If you don't have an answer for it early, a good delivery mechanism you'll see um, guys use is they gum up your lines on, like, turn two or turn three, and then turn four, you can't respond, and they have you. Greater Air is really good about that. The Glade Stalkers soften you up, or Force of Nature, they send in some some sort of cheap throwaway melee units. And then all of a sudden the greater airs have you when we're talking about uh, undead got a revenant horde in the front takes forever to shift or revenant cav in the front takes forever to shift. And then the whites are just like, aha, free targets. And they just barrel through you. I mean, the, the one thing the whites do have going against them is their speed, right? They are only speed seven and they can't move at the double. So early game, they are not very maneuverable. So, I mean, if you have if, – if it's just tough. It's like you're hoping your opponent's going to do something that allows you to do something, which is uh, give you a part of the white's frontage, right? Because that's the kind of unit that you just desperately – Kyle mentioned it earlier, sit down. That's the kind of unit that you just desperately need to just sit down because the closer you get to them, the stronger that fly uh, surge becomes. Yeah, that speed 7, speed 8 is a lot less scary than speed 10, and they're not nimble. But even the race at speed 7, if you don't have an answer for that archetype, again, each each of these things is a similar answer. You need to have, like, concentrated lightning bolt, a melee hero, 
or units you don't care about sacrificing as bait. And you have to have one of those three or you're always going to struggle. Because so far we've listed what I would describe as a similar archetype in all of these. Now, that's not the whole list Rob has. But for now, if we look at these top offenders, they all fit a similar role and it has a similar answer. Well, I will say that everybody up to this point was uh, majority flank hunters. They're not coming in the front and killing stuff. Whereas a horde of whites, it, it can come into the front and murder something. You know, 18 attacks, crush two. It has brutal built in. You I'll know. concede that point. That's that's a fair, fair decision. So this is one of those units where if you give it, or you know, you're, we're talking everything else, it's like, Front charge is fine. You should be able to survive a front charge with a, uh, you know, a an average hammer or average, you know, uh, expensive unit. And then the whites come along and your 15, 17 average nerve defense five isn't actually looking too hot. Um, especially if, you know, uh, one of these hordes has uh, a magic item buffing up. Uh, strength or sharpness, you know, one of those things put it over the edge for some of those math questions. So, which they often do. Yes. So, so I would say that the that's something to be aware of, and that's where um, you know certain tools are going to be more useful. Uh, so, in in every other unit, you could let them charge in the front, so you don't need to screen your units necessarily. Um, but hordes of whites or other hammers like them, you're going to actually have to have, uh, pieces in your army to block up your, um, or block the frontage of your, uh, units that you want to protect. Um, It'll be a similar conversation to the Drakens later. Yes. The Wraith Troop, I think is the most mentally challenging because it's a defense six unit that's so low in nerve that you can lightning bolt it off. But if you don't control it immediately, it never goes away again. Because I've, I've failed to kill them before, and then five turns later, they're still chipping away at me in the back being annoying. Yeah, for, 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 for uh, wraiths, or sorry, yeah, for wraiths, I try to think about what unit that I have in my army that's guaranteed to do one point of damage to defense six that's not necessarily vital to me. And I'll just try to send that against the wraiths and just have them fight each other the whole game. Like, I'm not trying to kill them. I just don't want them to get around and start doing stupid stuff. Because I think units that hit on fours, right, they become so much more powerful once they add in more dice. Um, I'm wondering, you mentioned earlier sort of the, 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 the flyer defense about you charge me and land, I'm now going to kill you, I'm going to shoot you dead. And I wonder if whites are a really good target for lightning bolt shooting or any sort of piercing shooting, most undead players I don't think are really taking heal, right? They're just running um, just the normal life leech that this is the type of unit you want to be putting some damage into early to maybe get a lucky kill, or at least when they do engage, you can, you know, they're already damaged. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, kind of. It's one of those where typically in an undead type army there's more uh other targets that are probably more ideal um a lot of them have their own forms of chaff whether that's uh you know even just like zombie units or if they went a little bit more like ghoul troops or um their death packs 
Uh, I would even say troops of race are probably uh, more ideal to shoot at than uh, a horde of whites. I agree. I'm I'm normally looking, can I shoot a troop of wraiths first? And if not, are there zombies? Because it's like the softest unit strength in the game to kill. So the the whites go pretty far down. And a part of it's because what Adam said, right? They're going to charge me pretty much no matter what I do, because they're not afraid to charge you in the front. So you have to deploy knowing your front line is going to die. And it's almost a value thing where it, it feels bad if you put in one or two full turns of shooting into a unit like the um, the whites, and they still were able to come in and kill something. That just feels bad. So um, trying to take out some of the more uh, realistic targets would be what I would focus on with shooting. Um, but it, it depends on your shooting, too. If you got two hordes of enslaved guardian archers and there's a horde of uh, whites in the open. I'd say if I had to rate them, I think whites are an overall better unit. I think wraiths have a much higher skill cap. But if someone really knows how to use a wraith, I have a lot harder time winning against really talented wraith pilots than I do against whites. I think that's my summary into that. So if, if your opponent really knows what they're doing, they can they can wreck your day with wraiths. And the only real way to counter it is to have an answer to defense six, do a couple wounds, and roll good. Rolling good on nerve is always the best answer. <laughs> Six to 70% of the time, it works every time. Yeah, and it may sound like we don't have great advice on these, but part of it's because they're a strong unit for a reason, and most of these are all built on exploiting your mistakes more so than any real natural greatness of the unit. It's, it's something that can just compound your mistakes more so than other units. Yeah, so if you I, play a flawless game, you're you're probably fine. Yeah, I mean, just think about some of the the, the general themes we've talked about, right? Which is uh, checking your angles, right? Making sure you know where you're at as far as am I in the flank, am I in the rear? You know, uh, denying space. You know, remember a unit can't charge something if it can't fit. And then also think about if it does charge, or I am giving this up, what do I have as a second line? I think second lines become so much more important in matchups like this. And then also too. That's kind of their point. Whites are supposed to fly and do and get surged into you. I mean, that's that's their bag. So if that happens to you, try to learn from it and move on. But that's kind of what they're supposed to do, right? Uh, they can't charge you in the face, obviously. But sometimes part of this game is armies, what armies do, they do to you. Doesn't mean that you still can't win the game. Think about scenario. Uh, you know, just uh, realize that it's... Really, in the end, it's just practice. You know, get it, get the games in, and you'll sort of figure out these little tools you can use. You bring up talking again, and, and we probably should mention, especially on these trickier armies, open conversation with your opponent is crucial. Because if you measure it, you think you're out 20, but you're kind of soft. You don't talk about it, and your opponent measures, and you lay that tape measure down, and it's just a lip on your base, and you didn't discuss it. As a, as a player at a tournament, I'm going to take that charge. But if you talk to me and you're like, hey, my I'm out 20. Can we double check this or can we look? And they go, yeah, you're out. And then on their turn, they measure it. You've already talked about it, so you're, you're good. Um, checking all those corners and checking those angles in no small part involves talking with your opponent, especially against all these like big, fast flyers from really far away. Sometimes you're a lot closer on a 45-degree arc than you realize when your opponent puts the angle down and goes, I think I'm in the flank, buddy. Anytime you check something, you should verbalize it. You should get into that habit, I think. I'm checking it. It doesn't take any extra energy to say, 
okay, I'm out 18. Then to check something, don't say anything. And then next turn, your opponent's like, well, I'm in 17. And you're like, I checked, but you didn't say anything. So then at that point, it's kind of like on you. You know what I mean? So yep, it never goes away. I like to play the uh, do you agree game where you, you do all that. You talk it through like, do you agree? Like showing them what you're, what you're seeing, what you're looking at. And if they don't, uh, if they don't agree, you decide at that point. Because as soon, in my opinion, as soon as you go to their movement phase, if they say, oh, well, it looks like it's a flank. Well, we're not playing a perfect game. Tables get bumped. Models get moved. Accidents happen. You know, something could have happened to where, yes, it is different now than what it was when we originally measured it. But the games should be played off intent, 100%. And most very rarely were you to hear the person who said, well, I agree that that's what you were saying. I didn't check it myself. So how do I know you were 18 out? I was saying yes, that you were telling me that. But, I don't, you know, yeah, I've, I've never had it happen. Situations like that have happened uh, where it comes up where, um, you know, my opponent, I, I trust my opponent. They tell me what they want to do. And then I go to my turn. If they wanted to stay out of 20 inches of flyer and I'm measuring. And it's like, I mean, we're like 19 inches, 19 and a half. It's, it's pretty clear. It's like, well, why don't we just bump it back, be out of 20 and, you know, make sure everybody's cool with it. It's like, okay, is that good? All right, let's continue. That is the gentlemanly, Um, gentlemanly thing to do. And it is one of the tips to handling tricky armies is make sure that you're vocalizing how you're not going to die to it. And I I know this is going to be geared towards some newer players, and I just want to make sure we put it back out because it may be the first time they hear Jeremy talk about intent. Yeah, and I will say... There is a difference when you're when you're playing against whites, especially when you're playing against surge units. This is not a fair question. Okay, my goal is after I reform to not for you to be able to fly, land, and then surge into my flank. And it's like, well, that's a great goal to have, you know. But it's it's another thing to say, okay, if I'm pivot here, I don't think there's enough with seven inches for you to be able to land, be an inch away from me, and then pivot to be able to be surged into me. Do you agree? Like those are two separate questions, right? You're asking your opponent about a specific scenario. It's very unfair to ask your opponent, "Hey, my goal is to have you not beat me." What it, it, do you agree? I've done the things that will make that happen. Absolutely, it's fair. But honestly, like especially in surging situations, um, I don't know. Personally, I don't like gotcha moments. So if some if an opponent asked that of me, I would go through, you know, kind of the laundry lists of things that I've learned from surge techniques and be like, well, you're protecting from that. It doesn't look like I can do that. The only thing you have to worry about is this possibly. And, you know, just kind of leave it at that. Absolutely. But I think that's about all we got on whites. It's it's pretty much, they're going to charge you. They're going to do what they want to do. Get ready for it. And for wraiths, just hope your opponent's not as good with them as he could be. Well, let's keep moving. Let's start transition a little bit away from flyers for a minute uh and let's talk about varangar specifically mounted suns with stealthy this is a little bit different than the type of units we've talked about so take it away kyle uh i'm gonna summarize what they do they go forward they kill what they touch and you don't shoot them off the table before they get there so it's what adam talked about for the whites except it's exactly what they're built to do and they do it excruciatingly well you counter it by having an answer to heavy cav and that ends my entire discussion of Varinger Mounted Sons with Stealthy. 
Pike blocks in Kingdoms of Men are very effective. Phalanx is good, right? Chaff, speed 10 chaff, or a chaff that is faster than speed 8. Like, knights are really susceptible to being chaffed. Again, thinking about space, you know, it's a little bit bigger frontage of a base. Where can they fit? Where do you want them char- charging? Stuff with deeper... Absolutely. Yeah, stuff with with deeper nerve blocks like infantry hordes can be good. Uh, if they're you know, going to kill whatever they hit, make it cheap and disposable. Yeah, or, or set it up so that a, a knight regiment can fit on the front of a horde, but maybe the, there's not enough space for the knight regiment plus a dragon or plus something else. So try to give them a, a, a charge that they're going to put damage on, but then you know they're not going to kill it. I mean, I, all those things are good tools to deal with. I, you know, fast individuals like a like a flying pharaoh or any sort of tough individual that can strip thunderous off knights is another good thing to to throw against knights. Yeah, and the big thing with this unit versus every other unit we talked about is the lack of flying, and but their speedy hammer. They don't want to be sitting behind uh, units. They they don't want to block themselves up. So. Most of the time, these mounted suns are going to have their frontage completely open for you to charge or block them. So those characters and whatnot um, that we were talking about is definitely a good tool to have. I I would always recommend, if possible, having a at least one fast piece of chaff or a fast character uh, specifically for these types of units that are trying to be fast and hit hard. Uh, you just need to be a little bit faster is all. Yeah. In the rock, paper, scissors, trash of Kings of War, which is hammer, anvil, was it alpha, anvil, and grind, and then trash is in the middle of all three, The my secret and why I don't struggle against this unit specifically is I don't care what it kills, and then it dies because I run the trash. So my answer is I have so much junk, so much garbage. You kill whatever your heart desires, and then you die. You drown in bodies, right? It's medieval Russia. I'm just going to bury you until it's over. We're done. So I'll throw 6,000 goblins at a a horde of, or a regiment of mounted sons, and eventually I'll win the trade. It doesn't work for every army, but it's a strategy. And that's the thing with knights, right? They can they they put out a, a good amount of damage, but they're not really like a sustained fighting type unit. They're not like a large infantry type unit that has inborn double crushing or inborn brutal or whatever. They don't. They're not going to hit after the first charge like whites hit. Yeah, they're low dice, high impact, and that doesn't want to grind at all. Not at all, right? So you either can feed them stuff or... Uh, uh, and it's a little easier to feed knights things because they can't fly over what you feed them. So having a couple of things that you can put in front of them are, you know, uh, I know Adam loves like scavengers or ger panthers or there's, a, you know, harpies or, or gargoyles or, you know, there's lots of... That's where I think that nice speed, fast chaff is really great to throw in the knights. And don't forget, Absolutely. you can have your own threat units. You don't have to use them as threats. So if you're against this big Alpha Strike army, and you have some of these units we've talked about that control flanks, like you've got your own flyer or a phoenix or a dragon or a wraith troop, you can use them in reserve and angle them so that they're staring at the flanks when this hammer charge comes in. And you can say, hey, my my threat isn't your army. It's when you close. So 
just because you have a really offensive unit like a horde of whites doesn't mean you have to use it offensively 100% of the time. Yeah, and cross-deploying your big, big, big baddies across from knights is, could also be good. Maybe your instinct is to try to put them away from the knights so they can go off and do their own thing. But being a knight player, it's frustrating when you have your knights that are fast, but not fast as like Alohi or other, you know, speed uh, 10 hammers that what can i do if i don't have chaff for my knights you're going to charge me first if it becomes where it's very difficult to use them my goal jeremy and you can tell me if it if i'm wrong or right as the one who plays them the most but my goal when i see those sort of hammer knights hammer calf type things is if i can make you wait to fight me till turn three or four i've pretty much won because you can't kill anything fast enough after that yeah they don't have the attack volume post uh first uh, first charge to really do much. So you're hoping to get that first charge and either turn turn two or turn three and then turn in. And then that's when, oh crap, what am I gonna do against these knights? But if, if you get if they get hung up on stuff. If they're afraid. Yeah, or you're having to you're playing like we've talked about that points trade that points trade and delay. Like I can't move my knights up because you have a dragon sitting right there threatening the board, threatening my knights. You know, uh it, it is very difficult to to play them. So I think most knight players try to bring up something that they can move the knights up aggressively behind. Like I used to always run Gur Panthers in front of my knights and just, they were like the knights, a blade of shield, right? They, their job was just to allow the knights to move at the double and have something in front of them still. I think the sole exception is this Storm Stormwind upgrade unit because they're native nimble and they're fast as hell. But outside of that, you just got to chaff the calf. If, uh, like what Jeremy said, if people are putting, you know, chaff in front of their knights to, you know, provide cover and to prevent a faster unit from blocking them up, uh, the absolute best thing you can accomplish is going in and wavering that chaff piece uh, because that will stop the chaff, it'll stop the knights behind it, and it buys you a whole turn so that you can advance up and get all of your pieces in the position you want. Those knights now are are they're very limited. They can maybe sidestep or back up, but they're not going to be going off and getting something else um, like a, a potentially a flyer might have been able to. Yeah, Aaron Chapman's really really good at running the mounted sons with chaff, and he he plays it. So if you're looking at how to pilot it, he brings the chaff, and if he's against lots of shooting, he puts the chaff in front. If he's not, he puts the chaff behind, and the chaff plays the mission while the knights go kill. Um, and he's really, really cautious about when he puts the chaff in front because a, a mounted hero with five attacks loves to waver a unit, not one turn, but two turns. So there's nothing more frustrating than having, like my personal experience, right? My mincers, my knight equivalent, just sit there waiting for you to finally kill the regiment that's been wavered for two turns so I can kill you. Yeah, the deploying the chaff behind your unit that you want it to chaff for is another one of those, I think, good techniques as you're developing your skill in the game is that chaff doesn't have to begin as chaff. It can be hiding, it can be waiting, and then it can jump out in front. And if then needed. all of a sudden, if needed, as chaff. You know, And sometimes that can be, you're using it not as frontal chaff, but you're. I want to move this knight, knight unit up and give a flank to your dragon. My Gur Panthers now come out of nowhere, pivot, and are now blocking that entire flank. So the dragon can't charge my knights and the next turn the knights or whatever. So it's just things things to uh, think about. But Adam's exactly right. 
when your knights do get stuck behind something, it is just like sad emoji uh, 5,000. Uh, that's why I think, honestly, I don't, outside of the, the Mounted Suns, I think because they have Stealthy and, and you mentioned, Kyle, the Silver Breeze with that upper, or the Stormwind Cav, which is almost its own archetype in a way. It's like very, it's not quite Speed 10 Flyers, but they're so much better than regular Knights. I don't think we see a lot of Knights like in the greater meta right now. Really. Um, I'm trying to think like you have the goblin formation, which is its own weird made up rules closer to the, the elves. You've got the Knights of Corrigan and there's a few players who take like maybe soul reaver cab are a good example because they've got the life leech and the high defense and the high speed. Mm-hmm. But um, on the whole night regiments in the current meta just die a lot. You die too fast and you can't get anywhere. And so if you're in a meta that sees it, take Spearman and you're going to win the vast majority of your games at deployment. I would say take Spearman, even if you don't see Knights, because every other unit on this list is affected by failing. So that's because you care if your units live, Adam. If they can't kill my chaff unit, then they sure as hell aren't killing my hammer that's sitting behind it. That's why I take only chaff. There you go. What's next, Rob? I'm ready. Next up, we got Dracons, the Keith Randall special. I, I guess there's some overlap of some of the things we talked about before in terms of flyers, but Dracons are a little different. And let's uh, turn it over to the Elf Master. Why are Dracons and their dragons? Uh, I think it's really more about the Dracons and the dragons, but why, why, why are these guys so difficult to deal with? Uh, they're just the best hammer in the game. You put elite on a 18 attack unit that's crush one, thunder one, and you have all the shooting support. You have, uh, you know, easy access to Bane champ backing them up. It, however much you want to go in on uh, this unit, you can do it. So Dracons just naturally, with the army that they're in, can get uh, buffed up, can get, you know, the chaff gets cleared out of the way. So all those defensive maneuvers we were talking about, they work until you lose those units at range. And then so your screening unit's no longer there, so now your hammer's exposed. And when the Dracon comes in and just man fights your hammer unit it usually doesn't end well for your unit so um ways to counter this are i mean travis tim might be a better uh person to ask he he held off all this stuff at adepticon and didn't kill a single thing and still won the scenario so that's probably the best thing you can do is focus on scenario um and then you know, it probably comes down to more list building um, than anything when you go up against Dracons and kind of the elf special that we're seeing. Um, you need to have uh, shooting threats uh, in order to take out some of their pieces, whether that's, you know, their shooting so that your chaff is going to be there for when you get into combat or you just say, screw the shooting units, I'm going to shoot straight at the, the Dracons themselves. Um it really just depends on what tools you have in the army list. But um, if you do have a lot of heal, a lot of sustain and grind, you're, you're in a much better place because your, your units will not fall as easily to the, uh, the shooting of the elves. And then these dracons are going to have less of a fun time getting into the things that they want. Adam, I rate 
Draken hordes and the formation very differently as far as their threats and play styles. Um, but you've got like a billion more games experience with that than me. But I almost view them as two completely different unit styles. I think that touch base back on all these other things we've talked about. So horde, a horde of Dracons is that big hammer, run forward, hit things in the face, kill it. Um, the Dragon Kinderlord and the Formation uh, Dracons are those units that are on the flanks. They're the nimble ones that are trying to get around the armies to force units to turn away from the main battle line and look at that flanking force that's coming down on them. Um, so the reason I don't think we actually see Dragon Lords is because the formation just does it better. Um, they're a little bit easier to, to hit with shooting, but the spell ward they have built in really really helps them out with, uh, with keeping alive. So, um, yeah, the elves are in a good spot right now. So if you're struggling beating up on elves and they're taking dracons, the formation shooting package, uh, I just, I wouldn't feel too bad about it. It's, uh, it's a good, uh, it's a good list right now. It's in a good spot and there's, uh, you know, there's things that you can do to combat it. I think the thing they hate most is the trash. So what uh, what Kyle's got going for him is definitely the way to fight the elves off. Yeah, I, I almost beat him. I, I lost because Keith's Keith. But it, it, our game came down to a coin flip, and I'm running, you know, some of my best best of the best against Keith's best of the best, and it came down to a coin flip, which should really tell you the strength of dragons and shooting. Yeah, it's just a really powerful unit that lives within an ecosystem that is full of tools to facilitate it, right? Which is... Uh, you want your opponent to move up. Well, I'm not going to. Well, you need to because I'm shooting you. And then the fact that Dracons are also hype four is a whole nother level of BS. That means they can just like sit behind hills and sit behind other height three units and still see everything. I guess one bad side is that they are monst- or they are a bigger base, right? They are the um, hundred by one fifty, so they're bigger than large infantry. So that means that the hordes that don't have nimble that are outside of the formation, they are a little bit more difficult to maneuver, I guess, because of that big, huge base. So maybe you you really tighten up in your deployment and just not give them a lot of places to land. But like Adam said, it's a top tier army that has very difficult. I mean, it's really challenging to play against. So, you know, I'm not surprised a lot of people are, are having going against this army and being like, ugh. On their own, they're good. With Glade Stalker support, they're S tier. So good. And then you pay, you take a bunch of defense six to deal with them, and then they have the Alchemist Curse Wizard flying around, just nuking you. You know, so a lot of the tools that you would want to use against them, the Elf Army is good at dealing with. So I think it's just it's just a lot of different threads all coming together that just makes that a really hard hard army to to play against. Yeah, but tools for counterplay. Uh, my favorite tool for counterplay is still a flying hero. I have access to Grony Snark, arguably the best flying hero in the game, but you also have Succubi. You've got Assassins with Wings. Um, any defense six hero with wings is still defense five. You strip their Thunderous. Um, they're not as happy. You force the charges they have to take to land in the woods, and Hinder Dracons do a lot less wounds. 
right? All of a sudden they're averaging like 10 hits with crush one. Whoop-dee-doo. That's the world's most depressing dragon. Um, so there, there are actually ways to counterplay. Um, anytime you get a chance to watch Dustin Howard on stream, he's one of the best terrain utilizers probably in the game right now. Um, I'm good. I think he's better. And the same way you counter Drakens is the same way you control Glade Stalker pressure and high shooting pressure. It's, it's all about trainment usage and forcing the charges. Just like we talked about earlier, if I'm going to get charged, I better get charged on my terms. So if you know you're against this sort of high shooting, high speed, high impact army, mitigate the threat until you're ready to play the mission, then come out the gamble. And I've lost to Keith by going too soon and too late is when do you decide it's time to break cover and take the charges? You go one turn too soon, you're dead. You go one turn too late, you can't get enough momentum to the objective. Uh, and that just comes from losing a lot. You just, you just got to lose a lot. And that is the impossible question that that list asks you is when to make that choice. Because you're 100% exactly right. There comes a time playing against that list where you have to commit because that list can fall apart if you can get to it, right? If you can get to it, they are elves. They do die. But it's that question of when do I hit the when do I hit the go button? Because if you do wait, the game it's it, it's over. It's done. There's nothing you can do. You know, the, he's cackling madly, looking at you as he's beat you yet again. Um, and then uh, uh, you know, so it's it's tough. That's for A sure. A real valid strategy is win the dice roll for first turn and go double time straight at it. And all of a sudden, Drakens don't want to charge full health armies at all. And Glade Stalkers don't win missions if they have to back up from deployment to avoid getting charged on turn two. And if you can buy board state early, sometimes you can just sit and go, all right, shoot me in cover now. I'm, I'm where I need to be. Um, or you can just keep applying the pressure. So one of the ways to beat Drakens is to be right in their face at lots of health and say, you're welcome to charge me right now. You're not nimble. Um, the thing you have to be careful of going forward that aggressively is sometimes you forget about spacing and your back line can't keep up. And as soon as dragons are in your rear, you might as well shake your opponent's hand. It's over. You do ask an interesting question, though. That idea of, um, I'm going to deal with this by, by, you know, witness me, like just full pedal to the metal gas. And you're just going to be like, I, I'm just going to come. I'm coming at you, bro. And we're just going to roll dice. And because maybe you, you can outthink yourself. I think this, this is an army that you outthink yourself against. Where instead of just going with what your gut is, you're trying to think about, well, this time I'll try this. Last time I lost so badly, let me try this. And it, and it becomes analysis paralysis. And you just you outthink yourself of any chance to win. Awesome. Well, let's keep rolling. Let's touch on aeronauts. That's another unit that we, we haven't historically seen a lot of halflings on the table. But... The first time you play against them, it's an experience. You know, Adam, what do aeronauts bring to the table that make them so so interesting? Well, aeronauts actually get around uh, phalanx and they get around in snare, and so they just don't care. Uh, they always hit on force. So that's probably the big unique thing that these guys do over any of the other uh, large cav regiments that we've talked about so far. Um, and then they're uh, a lot more swingy with the blast D three as well. So, um, yeah, the, the aeronauts are 
consistently inconsistent, basically. They hit consistently, always hitting on fours, but then that blast, just you never know what's going to happen. So um, the best item I've seen on them is a Blade of Slashing, because if they always hit on fours and they have blasts uh, with every hit, a Blade of Slashing is great. Um, but the one thing with them, they are, uh, the most expensive regiment, uh, of everything that we've talked about at, at 175, they're kind of like a mini hammer. So, um, whereas the, uh, you know, the soul flares, they were 165. So they're just a little bit cheaper, but they have more utility with the wind blast built in and, um, you know, race or, uh, whites are even cheaper than that. So. Um, you know, I, I don't, I haven't played much against, uh, halflings, but in theory, I do like them. I like the play styles they can bring. And I think you'll always see, you know, one to three, uh, units of aeronauts in any list of halflings that you do play against. And in the games that I played, Adam, they, the players who like to use them, use them very similar to how you use soul flares, which is, you know, you deploy them sort of from left to right in the middle part of your battle line and just look for flanks. Because when those guys get into the flanks, man, Bob's your uncle. They, they do some, they do some exploderizing. So I think just again, checking angles, you know, being aware of the, that, that cross X charging, you know, I think that's like a really good strategy to deal with a lot of, a lot of these units, but yeah, just try to take these guys in the front but you do not want to uh, give them a lot of flanks. Yeah, this is another flyer that falls into the, it's too tall to hide from, but at the same token, it means it can't hide from you, and their nerve is not miraculously deep. It's good for a regiment, but it's not insurmountable, um, and they don't have stealthy, they don't have defense six, they don't have life leech or regen. So if you have even a medium amount of fire, you can whittle these down pretty quickly and you can force the normally when you have a aeronaut, you're controlling the tempo of the game. But if you're getting shot at, they're too tall to hide for your opponent as well. So this is part of an argument for bringing combined arms and mixed arms. Even two units of, let's say, sharpshooters can really put the tempo on and make your opponent take a suboptimal charge. You can't out-terrain them because they don't care about terrain. Um, and you really don't want to grind with them because they're, they're still going to hurt. But if you can put the clock on, they're not super fast and super maneuverable like some of the other threats are. So the my favorite way to counter them is just start planking away. There's, there's really no good heal in the halfling list. I'm sure there's a way to do it, but not in the list I've fed. Why do you guys think, I'm curious, I asked this question the other day, why don't you think we see more halfling armies? I think it's a good list. I think it's because not everyone's painted it yet. You think it's just like a work since everyone started and wanted to do a mantic only because of that meant that there was no armies to kind of enter halflings right away. Everyone's been working on them. I think halflings suffer from mantic ogre syndrome where mantic ogres are just gorgeous. The halflings came out, but mantic ogres... Um, halflings also are kind of a unique play style. They're not quite goblins. They're not quite kingdoms of men. They're not quite anything that exists. And I don't think it's been solved yet. Like ogres have been solved, right? We, we know an ogre meta. 
I would argue goblins are solved. I just refuse to play it. Um, elves are pretty much in a solved game state. There's like option A, option B. Halflings are, here's a list. I don't think it's been, like you said, I don't think it's been figured out yet. I think there's lists within that army that no one knows or no one's played yet. That it's still like an undiscovered country to some extent. I've got, I've got a halfling list that pretty much feels like a goblin clone. Mm -hmm. And it's just oppressive how effective halfling infantry is when it's supported by sorcerers. Um, but I am not about to paint another goblin army that isn't goblins. <laughs> That's a lot of models to paint, right? For that. Well, I'm, I'm used to that. It's just those ones aren't green, and that confuses me. And I, I would equate halflings more towards a ratkin-type army, where ratkin, in my opinion, are one of the top-tier armies. But why don't you see them? I mean... Who really knows? People are willing to paint and play goblins. Mm. Um, but I, I think Rat can have a, a really good trash uh, type build as well going for them. I think Rat can are better than goblins. I just don't want to stop painting goblins. There you go. See, so some people are committed to goblins. Kyle, you know, Jeff O'Neill, they're just never going to change from it. Yeah. So I'll die on this hill. Mm-hmm. You're living your, your best life. That's yeah, debatable. <laughs> Halflings just don't have that fan base. They haven't been around as long, so you don't have those diehard halfling players at this point. So. Yeah, nobody cares about Frodo like they do about Goblin Town. You know what I'm saying? That's right. Goblin King. Woo-woo. All this talk about Ratkin and goblins, you know, that's another boogeyman out there is this trash meta. So, Kyle, what is it about the trash armies where they just – what is it that they do that is yeah. so effective and maybe hard for a new player to deal with? There are two – so first I'll explain what trash is. It, it's pretty self-explanatory, but trash is basically an insanely high drop count army of very few to zero high impact units. Like a high impact unit being a dragon or a regiment of soul reavers or any of the units we've talked about today. Uh, a trash metal list, like the one I'm taking to Masters, you could argue I have one high-impact model, and that's my 150-point hero. And that's debatable at best if Magua counts as a high-impact piece. So it's, it's the idea of I'm just going to bring garbage on mass, everything's chaff, everything's disposable, which means everything in my army is equally as valuable. And then the scenario allows you to decide priority. So trash is just tons and tons and tons of garbage. And the question you ask your opponent on deployment is, do you have an answer for this or do I win the mission by default? It goes in two flavors. So you have, you'll hear people talk about Jeff O'Neill or the shooting goblins like Travis Tim, Jeff O'Neill. And it's lots and lots of trash that brings loads of shooting. So every turn you're getting shot at, they put you on a clock. Dracons hate it. Adam Ballard hates it on principle. Jeremy doesn't have to play it because he's in the middle tables. Um, this is that's true. What shooting goblins <laughs> do. And then the other style of trash you can see undead do it. Goblins, halflings, EOD can even do it if you hate yourself. Um, and it's like a melee mass spam. You just take tons of bodies and you drown your opponent in fives and fives all game for the whole game. Um, and that's what I play, but that's, that's trash. And those are the two flavors and combating that because, uh, I don't have the experience piloting it. 
um, combating those armies, more specifically uh, the like Travis Tim version, the the all all hordes of rabble and then all toys. Um, you, you'll see those high drop lists with like twenty two to twenty four drops for goblins. Um, but if you actually look at the unit strength, they're not pushing a huge amount of unit strength out of the army. Um, and more specifically, when you look at the number of units that are scoring, it's quite little. Uh, there's usually only like 12 to 14 units that are actually scoring units because they take a lot of individuals, a lot of war machines. So these things aren't going to win them the scenario. So Usually it comes down to the Sophie's choice. Do you go after the unit strength units and try to win the scenario? Or do you go after the good units, the individuals, the war machines that are actually going to be killing you uh, and then hope that there's enough left to win the scenario or control whatever you're trying to control uh, or kill enough of the unit strength after that? Um it's really hard to kill the good units, though, because most good goblin players will just block them up, prevent them from being charged, or do what uh, Kyle did earlier and say, I'll let you charge this one piece of it, but then you're dead. So it, it really is a hard uh, army to, to combat. And when it's in the hands of some of the best players in the country, uh, I would say it's just damn near impossible. You just need to have good dice, good luck. Uh, on top of a excellent game plan and excellent execution with the scenario in your favor and getting first turn. And even then, it's maybe a 50-50. The secret is tempo. If So I'll just use me as an example. If, if we meet on a table and you don't start fighting me till turn four, you've lost the game. There's no question about it. Um, I play a melee version of Trash, so my unit strength is a lot higher than the shooting unit strength list. I have way less heroes way less war machines. Um, you know, especially if you see lots and lots of monsters, they might only be one unit strength each, but they're 90 points, 65 points. I don't care if they ever fight and I don't care if they die. So the longer you wait to close the door, the better off my army is because you can't chew through it fast enough. And if you close the door too quickly, I can envelop you because your army is staggered. So it's, it's a, I'm asking you the question, how many turns do you think it takes to kill me to win the mission? And can your whole army keep up or do I get to take flanks after flanks after flanks? And I have this mid range shooting. So a lot of trash players, we talk about the kill bubble for uh, ratkin trash and goblin shooting trash. The shooting bubble is long range. You have to close or you die and they're counting on that and they're just going to chaff you up. For melee trash, which is goblins, halflings, and kingdoms of men can do it really, really well. We're saying, I have so many bodies. If you wait too long to close, I win the mission. And if you close too early, we'll flank the hell out of you and you die. Um, and that, that's how I played my Night Stalkers last year as well. So that's the question they ask is, can you kill us fast enough? But if you do it too fast, you lose. And actually, Rob has a lot of practice um, with this. So I think this is one Rob could chime in and, and be contributory. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I've, I've been on the losing end of it a lot. You've lost to me a lot, Rob. Come on. Yeah, I know. The, the problem is, at the end of the day, what Ratkin and Goblins do well, I think, is they make the kill box. 
right? And if you, you if, if if you stand back and you try to not engage the kill box, well, then they have stuff that can range you. It can get to you from distance and you lose the game from shooting and in spells. And then so the flip side is, well, I got to get in there. I got to get into that kill box. Well, that's what they want you to do because they're going to feed you whatever it, whatever they need to just tie you down. They hold out a candy bar and you see that juicy nougaty center and you're like, oh, I want the nougaty center. But when you go for it, they pull it back and, and you're, you're now it's all, it's now over. You know, and to at this point, I think Rat Kid are even better than Goblins in that regard because they have a lot of stuff that can take the charge with uh, plague pots and um, uh, like ensnaring units. Right. And rally and rally, rally, rally. And they've got the, uh, you know, the being able to heat a lot of like heal type things or, Hey, I'm going to slaughter my, my, my crappy rats and I'm going to, and they got stuff with regen. So they're a grindy army who has like a lot of other tools. Rat kid had been the bane of my existence. I haven't cracked the nut. So I don't know. I, you know, you know, I, I think I did crack the nut. It's, it's play goblins or rat kid, right? Like that's, that's, that's my answer is I just, Join join the party. I, I can see where this is a very difficult thing for newer players to deal with. You overwhelm the senses when you play a goblin or a raccoon army. There's so many decisions. You're always second guessing yourself. Well, do I mess with this stupid wizard with alchemist curse and boots of levitation coming around my backside, or do I worry about the wingets, or do I worry about the bangets, or do I worry about the trombones? How do I deal with the mincers? How do I deal with rabble? Like all the different tools, they have all these different tools. What I've started to do is you just you just got to play your army and play to the scenario, and it is what it is. That's exactly it. You you play your mission. Yeah, you play your mission. Um, one one thing that I'll say about trash, if you're looking to become a pilot of trash is you need to be prepared to lose a lot. Um, Timing is way more important piloting trash than fighting trash because the flip side is none of your stuff is good, none of it's valuable, and it dies whether you want it to or not once you commit. So you, you need to learn how to beat it. So one of the ways to beat trash is if you close on me turn one or turn two, I've probably lost. I want that sweet spot mid game kill box that Rob's talking about and you'll die. I'll shoot you off the table. I'll get all the flank charges. Cause my army has also moved up together. One of the things you'll notice in, in trash is their turn one movements are kind of handicapped by having to control lines of fire for the shooting ones and having to protect their death cores for like the melee war trumbo and mid range ones that I play. We can't fight you turn one or we lose. And some of the best players I fight, they just start killing my stuff. Turn one, they're threatening charges. Turn two, they're in. And they're saying, I'm not, I'm never going to let you set up your kill box. Because once the kill box is set up, there's, it's kind of just like if you get the soul flares in the flank, right? Once they're there, it's over. It's the same with the, the trash. If the kill box is built, you've lost the game. To me, pl- playing against this army is like hitting a 16 and blackjack against a 10. It's not fun to do sometimes when you bust and the dealer flips over a 15, but you got to give yourself a chance to win, right? You can't just sit there and hope that everything goes. You have to give yourself a chance to win. So against these type of armies, I'm much more inclined to just get it on and, and charge and start fighting. And if it goes bad, it goes bad. But at least I put myself in a position that if I can have some things go my way, I have a chance to win. That's like when you're playing against better players, sometimes the right thing to do is to take a chance that you normally wouldn't take because you know all things equal, this person should beat me. 
So I know that I need to push, I need to push the envelope and try to get lucky a little bit. Uh, so knowing when it's time to just throw some dice is also important. But yeah, I think in this list you just you just go for it, uh, right or wrong. Give yourself a chance to win. The more time you take is like the other players just laughing maniacally as you as you don't move up, and they're just like, okay, I'll just set my eight hordes on these objectives, and now you're never you're you're never going to kill anything. Jeremy, do you approach the uh, the O'Neill Travis Tim sort of shooting spam? different than the melee spam or is it the same mind state maybe in deployment i'll try to use terrain maybe more against the shooting version and maybe i'll go super and depending on the scenario i just want to not give them a lot of shots in the first turn but i think it's the same thing if if, unless you get in there and start fighting you're going to get shot off or you're going to get maneuvered off and it's like death by a thousand cuts there's going to be no way to win maybe that's not the right way to go but that's that's how I see it. Yeah, anyway. I mean, the, the reality, too, is that we should also mention, you know, piloting the trash list is not easy. It's super difficult because you have a lot of stuff and it gets in the way and you really got to know what you're doing. So the more time you give them to get in position and to get their stuff in the right spot uh, is time wasted. So to Jeremy's point, you know, if your two choices are to sit back or get in there, Take if you're if you're if you're not sure, take the aggressive route because the reality is if you're playing a scenario like invade and you can just punch the goblin crap in the mouth and on their side of the table, that that's a couple turns they got to get because I mean your stuff is typically going to be a lot more. Um, I mean it's going to be more quality than the goblins have, right? Their goblins, the goblins aren't going to kill anything. Um, it's the other stuff, the trombones, the bangets, and the wingets, and the you know and all those things so i'm not a new player and i still struggle against this yeah i'll summarize it this way the majority of the nerve does the minority of the work so all the key things in these trash lists all the big important impact units are super super fragile so if you have a tool like height three lightning bolt height four lightning bolt goblin trash ratkin trash halfling trash human trash they die right? Our heroes have 10 nerve. Our war machines have 10 to 11 nerve. You, you, you kill a wasp. So you, you give any of the trash metal lists and you spread out your damage, turn one, turn two, and all of a sudden you need sixes to kill, fours to waver. You can stop the entire army in its tracks by having that answer. Now it makes you weak to other armies and that's just the balance of the game. But I always recommend if your army can bring a source of height three or height four shooting, even just one. If you go against a trash player, a lot of times we have very limited inspiring and you can snipe that one inspiring source out early. And then you're just hoping to spike dice rolls after that. And it's over. The last thing we wanted to touch on is kind of crushing strength. One spam, you know, uh, the typical one that I think of is orcs. Maybe Jeremy, you want to jump in here. You know, what makes those kind of lists that can throw out, those attacks with the crushing strength so powerful. Uh, and then we can start talking about how, how you combat it. Well, I think the Huskarls are a good example or uh, soul reaver infantry, or, you know, when you're thinking about the um, it's the, the unit that if they get the charge, odds are they kill anything in the game. Like how do I do deal with those type armies? And those are armies usually that, you know, have lots of chaff and they'll feed you the chaff and feed you the chaff and orcs are waiting or waiting, waiting, waiting to try to charge you with their berserker type infantry. Right. Which I think is cool to see berserker infantry and not just soul reaver infantry uh, to see it taken more. I mean, there was a long time where 
I don't know. I felt like there wasn't a lot of berserking type infantry being taken. Uh, I think there, that's when your real, your chaff play really matters, both how you play your chaff and then also how you deal with your opponent's chaff. Um, again, berserker type infantry that gets stuck behind things is, is tough. Having something that's bigger, uh, either taller, you're having chaff that's higher height than, um, uh, what their chaff is could be good, you know, so then your opponent can't just block things. They have to actually think about space too. Uh, it can be a way you deal with that unit is really thinking about how do I, how am I going to try to get speed on them or how am I going to try to, to get in their way? Or again, it's knowing that if they're going to charge you, having them charge what you want them to charge. I agree with that. I might have more games against orcs than anyone else in the whole damn scene. Um, courtesy of being Eric Trowbridge's punching bag for an entire year and a half of orc practice. Um, and I can summarize those crushing strength armies, whether it's orcs or salamanders or uh, revenant hordes. They all have two similar themes. And it's every turn they're not fighting is a turn they're wasting points. So if they get charges, they almost have to take them, whether it's into what they want to charge or not. Because if they don't charge your, let's say you got a troop of snow, or a regiment of snow foxes. Well, if they don't charge it, the snow foxes are just going to charge them. And then they're still stuck. So they're going to take that charge. And usually those crushing hordes or crushing regiments have crucial support pieces nearby, whether it's a war drum, whether it's a shaman whether it's a Thane with rally, there's something there that those units really can't survive without. And that's a lot of times how you take it out. You beat orcs by killing the war drum. You beat uh, Huskarls by killing the the rally hero and all of a sudden their nerve drops a little bit. Uh, I like to beat salamanders by getting rid of access to Bane Chant. You, you just break that support piece and their their impact drops noticeably immediately. So chaff and snipe is how I beat, got good at beating orcs. Yeah. And that really comes down to the Kings of war and armies are built in layers and you have to know which layer is the first piece that you have to remove in order to get to the core of the army. Um, and sometimes the core of the army isn't even the biggest, scariest unit. Uh, it's whatever unit wins them the scenario. So, uh, a same army or same list that that those pieces that you should be removing are going to change based off what the scenario is, uh, where you're playing, what the terrain is. So <clears throat> just being aware of these things and really the biggest thing is just having the experience, playing, playing the game, seeing the results, uh, making mistakes, or even picking up on mistakes that your opponent makes against you. Uh, and really just taking that in to make yourself better the next time that you put models on the table. Yeah, I, I think it's like about taking the step from knowing what the units do, like what is a unit stats, what does it do, and then knowing how that army functions. Armies tend to function a certain way, right? My army is a collection of tools, and it creates this, you know, built to do X thing. So if you can kind of understand not just what the stat lines and what units do, but what is my opponent trying like, what is the point of their army? 
you know, what is the archetype? How does the army play? What does it want to do? What does it not want to do? Then you can start thinking about how do I counteract against that? Correct. And one of the things that I notice a lot of newer players when I play, whether on UB or at the room, they overestimate the threat of a crushing strength one horde. A lot of those hordes are only melee four, 25 attacks, melee four, crush one. Their actual damage on average dice may not even break a regiment if they don't have support pieces. So sometimes it, the simplest way to counter it is to decide how many turns can I tank it on average dice. And it may just be worth being in the way and just ignoring that unit while it chips away at chaff. You know, you feed it a, a goblin horde. It might take an axe horde three turns to actually kill an axe horde, especially my favorite technique of all time. Get charged, disengage one inch into terrain, make them charge you again. Giant hordes, they love getting hindered. There's nothing the player can really do about it. I mean, they can use heroes and try and mitigate it, but that's, they're spending a lot of resources. Those big footprint units with crushing one are a lot less scary when they're hindered. And then just don't countercharge. Make them hindered again by an extra turn. If, if you're not going to beat it in a fight, don't try. That's those the good good tips there. You know, what's your one most important tip for a new player? Gosh, there's so many good ones. Uh, I would say uh, don't don't just rely on your firsthand experience. What I mean by that is. Uh, listen to podcasts, go watch game plays, go back to even um, games that have been uh, recorded and streamed a, a year ago. Um, it's all in the third edition umbrella right now, so they're all going to be useful. And see, just see gameplay and really focus more on the movement and the utility of the units than the actual... Uh, list or the actual, uh, you know, dice rolls uh, that are the specific outcomes. Look at how was the unit maneuvered and is that maneuver giving that person an advantage towards the scenario versus are they killing stuff? If you're new and your goal is just to play and have fun, great, play and have fun. If your goal is to become more competitive, right, move into Masters, move into the tournament scene, really start winning, my advice is don't be afraid to lose and actually try to lose. Have your opponent, have your local mate proxy up hard counters to your list. Play your list and really stress test it. Can I afford to separate all the way out? Can I afford to give up my battle cores? How much strain can i put on my army before it collapses on itself um you will learn infinitely more by losing a game than by winning a game every single time and if you tell your best friend to beat you they they will oblige so that's my advice just lose lose all the time and then win your tournaments jeremy you got a top tip well, we say it all the time on the show, right? Uh, obstacles are a pathway to mastery, right? Fail forward. Sometimes it's good. You learn a lot from losing. So don't be risk averse and don't understand that losing is a part of the game and it makes us better. So don't be upset about it. Ask your opponent. Most people are happy to share like, hey, uh, wh what do you think I could have done better? Or what do you, what, you know, ask questions. Um, 
build friendships. You know, so many times uh, Adam's beating the crap out of me and I'm like, what should I have done? And he's like, well, did you think about this? And I was like, I did not, <laughs> you know, and, and now I will, uh, you know, so just don't be afraid to ask questions, learn from, learn from uh, losing and that there's no substitute for games played. You really do, you know, you'll develop that sense of, of uh, uh, odds calculation, you know, speed, like how many turns can I hold this up? Or a lot of that comes from just the muscle memory of playing. So just get out there and play games. My, my tip is grudge up, play the best players you can play because getting smashed, you'll learn a lot faster than if you just play people at your same level. Try, try to keep playing the really great players. Um, and obviously, uh, Universal Battle is a great way to do that, right? You can reach out to the Adam Ballards or the Jeff Traches, right? You can get people internationally. I've never turned down a UB game yet. I got a few lined up this week for potential Masters players that are looking to win. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming you're going to beat me before Masters, Ballard. Don't worry. Yeah, develop those relationships, right? Develop the uh, think tanks. I mean, there's the secret chat cave. There's the, Ooh. you know... There's, there's tons of, uh, I think we all, we, you know, we all have them. Uh, we have like the West coast, we got the sweat lodge, you know, there's the brain trust, you know, there's tons of different, uh, chat groups, you know, pick people's brains. There's a lot of really smart, intelligent, thoughtful, awesome people in, in our hobby. I think we're really lucky that way. And those nerdy think tanks are like families. They, they're not just Kings of war think tanks. They're, they're your best friends hanging out. Yeah, exactly. After Dark's another great place. They're always talking strategy on After Dark. Come on to After Dark. Work on your army. Ask questions. There's always like a really good uh, strategy discussions going on. Thanks, Patrick, for the list of uh, units to cover tonight. And a huge thanks to Adam, Kyle, and Jeremy for sharing their tips on how to deal with some of these uh, more difficult units for new players. So, some ways to get around, mitigate some of this stuff. Ultimately, you want to learn how to play against it, play against it. The first time you see something, it's difficult. Second time, it gets a little bit easier. And, and over time, you, you understand what you need to put in your list and how to play it. Until next time, keep on countercharging with dinosaurs. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at countercharge15, or by commenting on the Countercharge Kings of War podcast Facebook group. If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons.